Hey guys, this is Ariana and welcome to All Things Good, a discussion-based podcast where we have important conversations about critical topics. This podcast is for any human who is trying to make their internal and external worlds a better place to live. Do you ever feel plagued by fear or Do you not know what to do next when you think about the climate crises? On this episode, we meet with Ramsey Adams, co-founder and executive director of the Catskill Mountain Keeper and co-owner of the Catskill Brewery. We talk about what we can do right now to help mitigate the devastating impacts that are to come from the climate changing. I also share what my experience was like meeting Mark Ruffalo. And we discuss not only how powerful, but honorable it is for people to use their platforms to fight for a just cause. I'm really excited about this, and I hope you enjoy. I am so happy to have our guest today. We have Ramsey Adams here with me. Thank you. I am so excited to be on this podcast, and I'm really uh, excited to talk about the Catskills and about the environment and about uh, the future. And I'm excited to do it with you because I feel like I've been uh, had the privilege of of being in your life for a, a little while. And so yes. that's, it's, it's exciting. <laughs> so thanks for inviting me on the show. Of course. Thank you. Yes, actually, the things you just listed are some of my very most favorite things in my whole life, which, you know, the the cat skills and the future and the environment. And (laughs) (laughs) just like you said, how we've been in each other's lives for quite some time. You are an incredible person that I have met. And in particular, you are the director and the creator of the Catskill Mountain Keeper, correct? Yes, yes. Uh, I'm a co-founder uh, and executive director of Mountain Keeper, um, which has been around for we're heading into our 20th anniversary. It's a little oh, fuzzy yeah. exactly, but it's it's been about 20 <laughs> years since we started the the, the idea and, and started to kick things off. So it's that, been a while. Wow, uh, that's so great. Yes, yeah. because I met you summer 2015 when I was working for the Edible Garden Project, which was a partnership between the Catskill Mountain Keeper and the Sullivan County Renaissance. Uh, That's right. It is that program in particular uh, is really important because it. It's evolved and morphed a little since you were one of the the great pioneers of the program. Um, And we're seeing um, the movement towards getting uh, edible, locally sourced food into the the public school systems now really taking off. I mean, there's a real push now. And uh, even here in the county, um, uh, one of the superintendents, John Evans for Roscoe and, uh, Livingston Manor has, uh, developed a model that's 
that's being you know shown and touted across the state as how you do that. So it's really exciting. Wow. That, you know, that really grew out of that initiative that you are a part of with Sullivan Renaissance. Um, yes. Wow, that is so incredible to hear. And just the success, because when we were doing it, it was a similar concept, but on a much smaller scale. And, you know, we had our edible gardens I think there was four or five throughout Sullivan County that we were maintaining each week. And the whole point was to get the community involved and to have them help out in the garden in exchange to be able to receive any of the produce from there. So I am so happy to hear that you've progressed to that point because more than ever, I really think we're living in a time where we need to be consuming produce and uh, just food commodities in general that come from a more local source. Yeah. I mean, one of the great things that we learned as we, you know, so for the listeners, I mean, you know, a little inside baseball here, but um, what what we're talking about is uh, community gardens, school community gardens uh, that the teachers and students uh, have on the campuses and the public schools and then use those gardens to train uh, not train, but educate students um, about, you know, the, the wonders and the science of, of gardening um, and the healthful benefits. Um, and then to integrate that, um, the, some of the produce uh, into the cafeteria food in various capacities. So the initiative really was, you know, a, pu- a public-private partnership and to help get the gardens growing and, and, and maintained through the summer. And that was really what the hard part, which I think is the interesting part. We could spend the whole uh, time talking about this <laughs> and I'd be happy to, but you know, the, in order for a school garden to be successful, the, the, the key growing season, the students aren't there, right? Yes. So the cha- the challenge is to find a, a, a collaboration where during the, the, the that season, those community, those school gardens um, are are bountiful and maintained. And then as the school uh, comes into session, you know, that you can harvest uh, that food. And that's specifically for on-site edible school gardens. There's also getting local or, you know, food into the school system, um, which is the most important thing that we need to do. We need to make mm-hmm. sure that we are sourcing food for our public school children locally um, as much as possible and incentivizing that. Here in this county, there's been no better champion of that than Denise Frangipani, who is uh, uh, now the director of Sullivan uh, One. 80, uh, mm. which is merged with Sullivan Renaissance. I, I love Denise. She's yeah. amazing. She's she really, she really gets things done and does everything with so much passion and heart. I'm glad that you guys have her on the team. And I'm so happy to hear of all that success. You know, I am curious, though, what about your life has made you so passionate about all of these efforts and these goals to be creating such a positive future. What about your upbringing has led you to this? Oh, uh, thanks for asking. I mean, it's one of those, those questions. It's, it's, uh, you know, it forces a lot of reflection, but I would say in my case, it, it really goes to my, both of my parents who um, I love very much. They're still 
completely in my life. My father grew up in Calicoon Center uh, here in Sullivan County on a farm, um, a small farm. Uh, and uh, he w- went to Roscoe uh, and and he just loves the Catskills. I mean, he has, it, and it's rooted in his childhood and uh and his you know wonder of 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 the wilderness and the world so and he became an environmentalist um and uh uh, one of the very first you know environmental um litigators lawyers he helped set up the natural resources defense council and was the executive director uh, of the NRDC for uh, 30 years. So I grew up with him, um, uh, you know, and and really understanding the environment and what was going on and seeing the challenges and the opportunities. But I also want to say it was my mother who grew up in the Great Smoky Mountains of North Carolina. Her father was an outdoorsman on a forest, worked in the Forest Service. Uh, She is a real you know, real appreciator of, of the great outdoors in a way that really was lucky for me. Um, so I've spent my life just blessed between North Carolina and the Great Smokies and and here. Um, wow. and my mother is also, you know, very much of an art artist and, uh, you know, she she's loves literature and art and music. So, you know, I got a lot of that great side of stuff from my mom. Yeah. Wow. I can't really, I can't imagine a better combination of energies. Yep. That's great. It's great. Yep. Wow. Yes. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense about where your passion comes from for conservation. But something that I did learn about you that I actually don't know too much about, but you have a background in music and film and television. Was that influenced maybe by your mother's artistic side of things? Yeah. I mean, you know, when I went through high school and college, um, I went to the University of Wisconsin. You know, I didn't know what I wanted to do professionally, but I knew I wanted to make music. So I was in a band with my brother and we were, you know, we had a band uh, named Banana Fish. And, uh, Banana and, and Fish? Where Banana did that Fish. name come from? Um, it's from a J.D. Salinger novel. So yeah, okay. it's, uh, you know, there's an element of <laughs> Uh, you know, of cringe with the title, you know, we were young, but we, uh, we, we had a lot of fun. You know, we, we were a, 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 a gigging, you know, live band in New York city for a long time. And out of that, those relationships and just being in the playing music and performing music, I became uh, intrigued at the opportunity of being in the, the music, the business side of the, of, of music also, uh, uh-huh. because, you know, I wasn't uh, totally confident that that I was going to be able to make it uh, as a musician. Uh, you know, I wasn't sure. So um, when the opportunity arose, I went and worked for David Krebs, who's a legendary music manager, ACDC, uh, Aerosmith, um, you know, uh, the New York Dolls. Um, the guy, he's one of the great music managers. So I worked with him. Wow. Uh, we, we managed the Trans Siberian Orchestra and Richie Sambora from Bon Jovi. So I was like 
an assistant manager I worked under directly under David Krebs. Um, uh, you and guys thrown it. So, that is yeah. That was really fun. World. It was amazing. It yeah, was that's incredible. I can't yep. even imagine. And and you know it just sort of that whole world in New York City working you know working at a at a major music managing firm doing that stuff and during the, when they were building the internet you know everyone this was the very beginning of the internet and building websites and music and all that stuff so i got very good at sort of uh coordinating um building things you know i wasn't a programmer or a designer but i had a pretty good eye and i knew how the it was supposed to work so i was able to get talent together designers and 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 people who could build the you know the infrastructure the architecture for these kinds of websites um, was this so in I, the early 2000s it or? was it okay was. so that's also before, like all the before 9/11 yeah all before okay. All before yeah, 9 11. Yeah, 2008, so- 9, 10, 11. And then um, I, I, I transitioned into the news business and I worked uh, in cable news um, for uh, a, a, a period of time in the, uh, you know, in the art division and music division. And I worked at Fox News uh, for a number of years up through 9-11 and then quit out of, you know, uh, I, I, I morally left Fox. Uh, uh, understandably. For a while. <laughs> yeah. So it was an amazing experience, I'll tell you. I really learned a lot about how the world works. And I, I was the music director for Fox Radio TV, cable TV news, and uh, the internet. So um, I oversaw all the music for all of those divisions um, within the, the, the network. But the politics of the cable news side were so significant, I couldn't stay there. And so I left mm-hmm. and I um, started working doing progressive public relations with David Fenton, who's a, a wonderful, brilliant public relations guru. And I, I worked with him for a long time. And I started Mountain Keeper sort of out of that shop, you know, with his blessing Um uh, I, I left, you know, David to start Mountain Keeper, but like I said, with his blessing and, and, and good advice um, on how to do something like that. So that's sort of my trajectory. Uh, I started, Mountain, yeah. yeah, I started Mountain Keeper, um, like I said, about 20 years ago after, uh, after 9-11, um, and all of the, the wars and, the the, the the scariness of that post 9-11 world. Um, and, uh, and there was a real threat to the Catskills and, you know, we'd always, you know, I've always, I, although I'd been living in New York city since college, um, I'd been, you know, this was my home, the Catskills always. And, uh, there was st- starting to be real significant, large scale threats to the Catskills. And yes, a number I, of us were I, really I, concerned about it. I do remember that time period in history. However, at that time, I was very young, but (laughs) I was, I grew up in the Catskills as well. You know, I grew up just about a mile and a half from the Neversink Reservoir, which just is right outside the southernmost part of the Catskill Park over here. Uh, You know, I do remember that. And it was quite a scary time. And that threat still does remain. I think it's been so long and we continue to endure so much as like a human population that I think maybe it's not always in the forefront of our minds. But to this day, you know, the Catskill Mountain Keeper, the whole concept is incredibly important. 
Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's right. So when we started 20 years ago, uh, there were some significant threats that were facing the region. Um, in particular, what type there of are, threats were those? Yeah, so the, the, the major threat that we were looking at were large-scale housing developments um, as part of the housing boom that mm-hmm. had been happening. And every mm-hmm. place that had any ability to build tons and tons of houses was on, on the bullseye. And th- there were just a, an enormous number of large-scale housing development proposals all throughout Bethel and all across the Delaware Valley there into Sullivan County. And, and, and there was also, at the same time, a large proposal to build a large power line on the banks of the Delaware River to run a power line along the banks of the Delaware, um, uh, sort of the cheapest, easiest, quickest way to get energy, you know, and and it was just so outrageous. So, and these two big issues that were, uh, you know, happening in real time, there was no organized groups or or any kind of community uh, uh, energy. Wow. Around organizing to, you know, ask mm-hmm. the tough questions. Um, and so that's the, where the genesis came out of. But quickly, the casino proposals kicked in and then fracking kicked in. And, and so I guess my point is, is that, you know, the, the bullseye has always been a little a moving target about, you know, what which which big proposals that threaten the very nature of the Catskills we're talking about at what period and which ones are threatening us now. But their pressures coming at us that are enormous and frightening um, and we have to deal with them we have to mm-hmm. tackle them we have to shine light on everything and have honest conversations about what our future looks like if we uh, keep going the way we're going you know how to plan for the future plan for the growth and and how to mitigate the impacts um, the challenges are just getting more uh, more significant <laughs> well, well that's what that's what I'm thinking and the birth of the Catskill mountain keeper came at the perfect time because during 9-11 we had all these major threats especially with people trying to get out of the city but then fast forward to where we are now you had COVID which was another big push of people outside of the city and just to explain you know the Catskill Park is in a very interesting it's in a very interesting space as it's only about an hour and a half less than two hours north of New York City. So it's it's really in an interesting interesting space because it's very desirable. It's close to the city. It's, it's beautiful. And I never even thought about the housing development proposals and everything like that, but it makes so much sense that it's such a sought-after area. Now, when I worked with you guys, that was before COVID happened. So now that COVID has been here for a couple of years, I know that even just right where my parents live, like their house has doubled or maybe even tripled in value. And I know that the housing boom and the housing market has just gotten more intense. Uh, is that a really big issue that you are currently dealing with, with protecting it? Yes. So that's, that's, that's right. That's the observation um, that the data supports. Um, so what we've learned uh, is that the Catskills can project out significant growth. The Catskill Park in particular uh, 
one of the ways we know that is I, I was appointed to the Catskill Advisory Group by uh, Governor Cuomo and then Hochul uh, with the Depart uh, DEC Commissioner Basil Sago. So about 16 of us, different stakeholders across the Catskill Park, um, uh, met and over two years uh, drafted uh, recommendations to the commissioner on how to manage uh, the Catskill Park moving forward. And uh, included in that was getting together all of the data that exists uh, that that um, tracks growth. And what we're just seeing, you know, to make it simple, is uh, a, a massive, slow, and but speeding up demographic shift of who uses the Catskill Park and how it's used um, and the intensity of use. And it makes total sense. I mean, what happened during COVID was people looked to get outside and recreate nearby their homes. And so the Catskill Park just saw this massive increase in usership. And that usership demographically is much more diverse than it had been. The, the Catskill Park is a very unique resource. It's the first park in American history, along with the Adirondack Park, the first park established by Roosevelt. It's huge, but it's also a public-private park with public land and private land and city land. And, and so it's, a, it's, a, it's not a straightforward park like you might expect out west, where you drive through a gate and you're in the park and you drive around the park and then you leave the park. The, mm -hmm. the Catskill Park is much more complicated, and we can go deep into it, but it requires a much more complicated management system and a much more complicated uh, law enforcement system than uh, you know a, a standard park would have. But the key thing for me, and, and, and I want to keep hammering away with the people that I talk to, is that the, the Catskill Park is owned by you. It's your park. It's your park. Nobody else's. It's yours. It's mm -hmm. it's our park. It's not somebody else's park. It's it's the Catskill Park. It's New York State Park. It's your park. It's our park. And we have an obligation to protect it and to make it accessible. Um, it is there to be used by us yeah. as a park. And so that's therein lies the rub. How do you do that? You know, how do you... Uh, manage the park, protect the natural resources, and make that resource available for the helpful benefit of the, the populace. And so the Catskills, you know, the, the biggest draw for the Catskills as a region is the park and the public lands and the rivers and, and the waters and the lakes um, and the fresh air. Um, that's, that's what, that's what makes the Catskills the Catskills. But there is a distinction between the park, the blue line, the Catskill Park, and then the Catskills. And then a third distinction, what is the geographically the Catskill mountain range or, ge or geologically what the, the Catskill geological formations are. And again, it's a complicated kind of overlay of a lot of different things, which makes it uh, unique and special, like really special, but also makes the task of, of our job as advocates to promote and protect it really hard because there's mm -hmm. so many different pieces to it all the time. Um, and it's hard for people to generally understand. Like, I don't think most people know when they go into the park or don't or leave the park. 
you know, in, in the Catskill Park. Like you, you don't know. Like, oh, I just got into the park. I'm here now. Yeah. You know, it's like, There's occasionally, well, there, there are signs. Like you said, it's not like out west where there's an entrance or maybe a few entrances to the park. And it's like a very well-known thing. You might have to pay a permit. Uh, like you said, it's public and private land. So it can become a bit unclear as to when you're actually on it. And wow, I'm just, I, I knew, mo- I knew this or I knew most of this already, obviously, as I did work with you guys. But I think I'm in a, an expanded state of consciousness <laughs> now that I've like gotten older and I really understand the, importance of the Catskills. At that time that I worked with you guys, I had only ever lived in the Catskills. And then I lived in Oneonta. Is Oneonta in the Catskills Park too? So Oneonta is uh, really the beginning of the Leatherstocking District uh, and okay. uh, the Southern Tier. Um, it's super confusing, yes. but Oneonta is 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 right there on the edge. Uh, okay, but right we, uh, there. We the don't edge. we don't con- include Oneonta in our uh, advocacy work. Um, okay. And lot, you know, directly. I mean, we'll indirectly and get involved in things, but that's not like that's not our geographical identification of the Catskills. Just, just, okay. just below it. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, not part of the Catskill Park, but I only ever lived in like luscious, rich, green environments until much more recently. After I worked with you guys, I have slowly worked my way through the Hudson Valley living in Monticello, and then I lived in Poughkeepsie, I lived in New Paltz, I lived in Beacon, and then I lived on Long Island for a year, and now I live in Brooklyn. And I have just become so incredibly aware how precious and how special nature is, and fresh air, and just the ability to go outside and to enjoy grass and rivers and streams because for me growing up that was just kind of normal right like it it was just like normal to see the beautiful greenery and to have access to this nature and I think I have a greater sense of appreciation even now hearing you explain this whole development process and just what exactly you guys are advocating for. Because one thing I really like is that you guys are not only trying to conserve the area to to preserve its natural resources and everything, but like you also want to make the economy, which one of the major contributors to the economy is tourism. Like you want to make it sustainable and you want to make it accessible. Even just how you're saying like, this is our park. I really appreciate what you guys are doing for that. Thank you. It it is so important. I mean, you know, um, long-term sustainable economic development strategies, you know, are sort of like the buzzword, you know, it's like main street revitalization, you know, sustainable economic development. That is what needs to happen. And that's what this is about. But that means supporting the industries uh, that, that support those uh, economic engines. And, and it requires, um, a lot of coordination between the the county, the state, and the towns, 
I guess what I would say, we, a group of people, a, a great group, big group, and I was just a minor player, but, you know, really focused on getting Livingston Manor to seize an opportunity that it had to become a, a, a town that took on that Main Street revitalization character and, and, and you know, it's like ch- fix all the broken windows, paint all the, 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 the buildings, have Sullivan Renaissance, Sullivan 180, you know, uh, help plant beautiful flowers and have events like the trout parade and make sure that the supermarket is, 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 is people are, you know, using it. So we have a supermarket there for the town and, and then, you know, support each other and new endeavors. And it's worked. I mean, Livingston Manor is a really good example of a successful effort we're not it's not all the way there it's not done it's not you know the end of story um and things can change but i think if you look at livingston manor and its evolution over the last 20 years it's a great success story and it's but it, 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 if you look at why it's successful it's because of this very large collaborative effort by a lot of stakeholders to work together to uh, make it work. So for example, one of the things that was identified was that Livingston Manor didn't have a fly fishing shop. You know, all the fly fishing shops which, were, in, which is, were in Roscoe because Roscoe is Trout Town. And, and so, yes. but yeah. But there's a lot of fly fishing in yes, Livingston exactly, Manor too. Exactly, and so Daddy, they, oh, Daddy, they opened a beautiful fly shop and it's world class and it doesn't you know take away from the great fly shops in roscoe it's it's an addition and and it creates more fly fishing tourism and energy and it's like like that kind of collaboration and 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 working together and 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 uh you know to make livingston manor it's just an example um and it's by you know jeffersonville and and lots of towns calicoon narrowsburg Hurleyville's, you know, in a, in a good fight too. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, opportunity. And I think if you look and see that it can be done, it, it makes it more motivating than just like holding out some idealist idea that you can't point to any place that's real and say like, like, like yeah. that, you know? <laughs> well, it's almost like a real life example of striving for beautification versus gentrification. I, I feel like because um, especially like in Livingston Manor and in these uh, communities, I think it's so important that we focus on improving like the existing conditions for the existing population to like improve the community. And of course, with that can come enhancements and shifts in communities as it, it grows and evolves. But I really like how there's an effort on just, you know, taking advantage and improving what's available already. Well, I, I want to highlight what you just said, because it's so important and it's incredibly relevant because I don't want to pretend that the gentrification of towns like Livingston Manor isn't a possible outcome of what these efforts are and it's a really troubling issue that i you know that we all i particularly uh, grapple with because 
the, 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 the goal is to improve and beautify the existing infrastructure and celebrate the history and culture of these towns, you know, that what makes them beautiful and make them important and the people and the characters and the, 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 the restaurants and the food and the, the people and the, the, the talents and the skills and the art that, that people have mm-hmm. culturally here and, and not to just have, you know, a, a pocket community of, of, of city people who just sort of move up here and take up over the housing stock and, and open a, a Wegmans. And, you know, that's, exactly. it's really, it's, I'm really glad you brought it up because like, it's, it's the other side of this narrative that's very complicated and, and, and important to like shine light on and talk about. We can't pretend yes. like that's not a real, real, real threat. Oh my goodness. Yes. Okay. So this is random and I wasn't planning on talking about this, but it's like a perfect segue. Just this whole concept that I feel like needs, like you said, shining light on it. I feel like it is not discussed enough, but one thing that has been on my mind heavily because I've been seeing it happen in Sullivan County is these dollar generals are popping up like in places that I personally feel like they shouldn't be. And I can explain that a little bit further because technically on statistics and demographics and a criteria based on like food deserts, they are popping up in areas where we need additional resources. But something, it's kind of a theme that you've been touching on that I wanted to bring up this concept anyway. But the concept of community based living or just like community supported existence, you know, I think instead of if we really look at what these dollar generals are doing, because one popped up on 55 in Gramsville. I think that's 55. Is it 55? Or, yeah, 55 yeah, yeah, I, and... I, uh, yeah, I saw it just the other day. Yep. Okay, so that popped up there. And another one, I think they're... They're, they're, all, they're all over. They're, they're all over. Yeah, and to me, it's devastating and crushing. And the reason why is I know some people are like, oh, this is good because like they're if without it, it would be at least a half an hour ride to get basic goods. But every time I see these dollar generals popping up, my heart just crushes because what if we were able to create this entity that was community-based where instead of walking in and um, having like your typical dollar general, what if we had soap from like maybe local people who made soap or various other goods that were locally made and it's just to me I um a little bit of a tangent but just going on what you're saying like yeah yeah no I I think what you're what you're alluding to is 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 the evolution of our food of of our food system in a way that supports and sustains the local economy. The local, I mean, there, yes. there is nothing, there's nothing local about Dollar General, you know? So and that's yeah. what I, I said earlier in the call about, you know, supporting the local supermarkets. I meant that, like that is, when you go and shop at the local supermarket, where there are local people working in the local supermarket, it's locally owned, um, they're sourcing locally, you're you're keeping your money in that community in a way that's way more impactful than if you support the larger chains 
And then if you support the, the, these, the dollar stores, you know, because those dollars just fly out of here, you know, they don't stay here. I mean, the, the bigger chain supermarkets are a little more complicated than, than the dollar generals as far as how, much, how many dollars stay and are generated by them locally. But I can tell you that the, the best dollar spent is a local dollar spent in a store uh, that uh, is locally owned. And, a thousand and, percent. And and that's the evolution. You know, that's where we we just have to. As as I mean, the the, the nature of our economy is uh, the way it's structured is that you know, without government intervention, the consumer has to drive that change, and 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 the yes. consumer has to you know. We do have choice. Like we have so much power and we do have a choice but i think we've been so far removed from that concept that sometimes it's it's hard to remember our options especially like you said that unless the government intervenes a lot of these trends and systems are um you know as consumers, what if we just said, like, no, like, what if we just, like, stopped consuming in the same ways that we have been? And um, talking about supporting, like, your local market and community, I I just tried to Google it really quick, and I can't find the exact fact. But I think we're, like, so out of touch, especially when it comes to food, because in our society, our food is not grown to feed people necessarily. It's it's made to make a profit and to, and to sell. And I've become very saddened lately as I become more aware of this. And I walk into the grocery stores and to see the shelves, like, packed to the brim. And especially with produce when I was little I remember you could only get pomegranates like the second and third week in January (laughs) but now you can pretty much get pomegranates any time of the year and there so the fact that I don't know the exact fact for so uh, if I do find out I'll leave it in the show notes but it's some absurd number where I I forget if it's like 80% or something like that but like a very high percentage of the produce we consume in the wintertime in particular is grown by slaves. And like, that's like very alarming and like, whoa, like, what do you mean? Like what type of slaves? And like, the fact is that it's, it's like people in, uh, especially in Central and South America who are quite literally enslaved to work on these farms to mass produce this food that we consume, which not even to mention how much goes to waste. I'm so passionate about it. And I've always been a huge component of composting and conservation. But it it's alarming when I see like these dollar generals popping up and quite literally the opposite of a local community, a local economy, like focusing on locally grown items you know i i wish we could i think it's starting to happen a little bit but i wish we could all focus more on just living season to season and you know living with what is natural naturally being provided to us during each time of the year you know 
Yeah, uh, I can't help but take uh, the opportunity to give a shameless uh, plug uh, to Eugene Thalman and the Sprouting Dreams uh, Farm in Liberty, which is an urban farm in the city of Liberty. Uh, Eugene Thalman uh, runs farmers markets in Sullivan County, uh, manages the, the Liberty Market and the Calicoon Market. Um, he has an urban farm in uh, in within the city limits of Liberty, and he uh, his model is really exciting because he is you know producing a lot of fresh, local, delicious food. He's managing and 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 and, and growing these markets and encouraging other growers and and creators and producers to join the, the markets and. There is no better place to spend your money than at a farmer's market. And, um, yes. you know, we're the reason it's a shameless uh, plug is because Mountain Keeper is the sponsor of that. You know, we sponsor the market, uh, the, 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 the Liberty Market and, and Eugene and, 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 and deeply support the farmer's market movement here in the county and across the Catskills. One of the, you know, one of the key things about this that we've learned in this process. And again, we've had the help of Sullivan Renaissance, Denise Frangipani, Cornell uh, Cooperative Extension um, with the farmers markets. There's a lot of great people who are besides Eugene involved in, in making these a great success. But the access that the farmers markets provide for uh, federal food aid. So you can use federal yes, food aid. Like SNAP. Yeah. You can use SNAP and some of the other assistive programs, correct? Yes. I mean, that's like, that's an, that is such a great investment, like for everybody. Think about like that program should like the easiest things we can do to get to the vision that you're talking about, Ariana, is to like massively invest in that. Like it's like if, if, if someone is, 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 uh, you know, taking too many onions from, you know, then their SNAP benefit allows them to feed their kids. Like there's worse problems to have, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so many. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, it's, and, and so great to see growers like Eugene and, and the other, you know, great farmers around the county, um, you know, just the enthusiasm and excitement about food and health and the future like that you're talking about. I mean, it's shared by so many people, but there are people doing it like Eugene. These are people mm -hmm. literally doing it, you know, not talking about it, which is so cool. Makes me so proud. What did proud. you say? Uh, you said Eugene Thalman and what's his garden's name? Oh yeah, so it's, his name is Eugene Thalman, and uh, his his farm is called Sprouting Dreams. Sprouting it's, Dreams. It's just above, just above the downtown Liberty, just up there on the hill, and it's okay. a it's a beautiful farm. It's a working farm. I mean, if you want to see what it's like to grow a lot of vegetables in a high season in an urban environment, um, this is so impressive. I mean, it's really cool. Okay. That's good. I'm definitely going to check it out. I have a question. I don't know if you've been growing anything in particular, but I have a tomato plant this summer that I've been growing on top of my roof in Brooklyn. And I noticed that maybe it would be a little further along in previous summers. And with all this rain and like the unusual weather, I was just wondering, have you noticed how crops are doing like up in Sullivan County 
Because I know that... Um, well, so there's a, there's a short answer for that. And I'm not sure about tomatoes because tomatoes are like a nightmare no matter what. Every year it's like, <laughs> what, what's wrong with my tomatoes? Oh my God. <laughs> tomatoes are a tough, a tough one. But we had uh, a late frost that really hurt a lot of those crops that needed to an early bloom. So that was really bad. So we're going to, you know, apples, things like that. It's not a great year, I don't think. I'm not a farmer. So, I mean, there's better people to ask. But the way I've heard from Eugene and Wes and other people that are out there every day is that, you know, although this here in the Catskills, we've had a lot of rain and a lot of sun and there's a lot of things growing. That early frost was was really, uh, or late frost was really yeah. uh uh problematic so um i mean i think we're lucky we've been lucky this year so far with the floods we had um a hurricane rip through here that's climate change uh <laughs> driven no devastating yeah. hurricane that destroyed uh, yeah. a, a number of houses and 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 hurt a lot of people um so uh, um so just like i guess where i was thinking with the original question is just with this climate change and the extreme weather, I've heard that I think apparently within within 10 years, if nothing changes, like with by 10 years, our food system as we know it is going to be completely different because of growing seasons and abilities. And even just like you saying, like a hurricane in the Catskills, like tornado, right? like <laughs> a, a tornado. Yeah, like a tornado in the Catskills, like, excuse me. And then... um. Oh, bless you. Um, oh, yeah. No, you're good. Just like all this extreme weather, how do you think that might affect the Catskill Mountain Keeper in the future? Because I feel well, like now, now it's like you're like, okay, we had the housing boom. Okay, we have to deal with fracking. Okay, we have to do this. And then now it's like, oh, wow. Okay, we have to start learning about extreme weather and how can we protect ourselves with that? Yeah, so that that's a really, really important question. And I think that climate resiliency, you know, what how do we predict and then plan for what we expect to happen as a result of, you know, rapid onset of climate change, which is happen is gonna happen. I mean, there's no we 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 we're missing all of our chances every you know, every day to minimize how severe this is you know and it's just every day that we don't take global action to confront this the more severe it will be and it's very hard you know to predict <clears throat> obviously really hard to predict what's going to happen and i'm going to point to hawaii as an example and i feel for everybody there uh the victims and the families but i also feel for the people and 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 leadership there because this happened so fast and it's never happened before and uh, this mm -hmm. is the these are the wildfires that that burned um uh, in hawaii and, and and wiped out an entire uh, historic town and killed who knows over 100 people this wasn't anything that they had ever i mean this is uh, an island that's completely isolated forest fires have never been a thing before like this is just like climate change you know this is change so i immediately think what happens around forest fires here like the catskills don't have forest fires like that's not our thing like that's not the danger zone you know we are we are always on alert for forest fires and we're vigilant but that's not been um the, the number one likely 
threat to our 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 region um mm-hmm. and after watching the smoke from the canadian oh, wildfires yeah, in canada that was co- really scary. cover the entire region for days uh with toxic deadly smoke the, the whole catskills covered in it you know it's just what i would say is that there are really big like almost um existential threats including massive wildfires um you know drought massive flooding um which is already happening in like other parts of the world like especially in like africa and stuff like that like this has already been happening but we've been you know depending upon how you want to look at it like blessed or privileged or fortunate that in our part of the world like um we've been pretty fortunate to not really have to deal with any of these major um actualizations of mm. the climate crises yet until more recently now like right well the flooding uh, the floods that wiped out and killed people here and 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 the catskills um plattsburgh livingston manor uh over on 206 and outside of roscoe you know um uh, these are uh, Prattsville, not Plattsburgh. Sorry, Prattsville. Um, these are these are once uh, five hundred year floods that have never happened before. That are happening, you know, over and over again. I mean, so we we are not immune, but I think we are, you know, so far um, <clears throat> going to see the major impacts perhaps a little later than other places. But I think that the main point is that. We should take no solace that maybe the Catskills will be, you know, uh, a little more climate resilient than other places, because when the world goes upside down and everything gets displaced, what we think we have here will change, like, Mm -hmm. dramatically, you know, like, when you've got millions and millions of climate refugees, you know, all, all over the place, everything will be different you know like so it's not you know it's really hard to predict all of those kinds of outcomes you know what what the world will look like um let's say for some you know in some world some version of of events plays out that you know the catskills and 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 the 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 ecology you know is is pretty resilient and the water is fresh and 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 it's a place where you know crops can grow and things you know well if a lot of the rest of the world isn't like that that's going to change this place a lot you know we're gonna right (laughs) it'll be a much different world yeah the tourism well you know i don't even know if you would really call it tourism but like the population in which people are being here you know that that would change as well uh, but, but it is, you know, people need to be aggressive and, and, and about this. I mean, I have, I, I pull no punches. Like this is, this is uh, the fight for humanity's existence. And we, and this is our opportunity. It's all, they've, you know, the, the whole entire history of mankind has arrived and here we are, and we're the ones who have to do this hard task and we have to rise to the occasion and we have to fight like hell for our children and, and, and the future of humanity. It's out, you know, it's outrageous, but it's also exciting. It's an opportunity. Like this is our time. This is my time and my children's time to show true leadership, you know, um, what humanity can be if we work together to solve a existential crisis, you know, and it's through these kinds of conversations that it, it will happen, you know, honestly. 
Yes. I, you know, I, I am so happy with our conversation so far <laughs> because these are the types of thoughts and feelings that I have and I've just become more and more passionate about it and I just feel so compelled to do whatever I can and I think also working in New York City and working in the entertainment industry because I know that's where your where your past uh, lies and that's kind of where I am currently. I think it makes you even more aware of these issues that we have because when you're in the city, you see how fast-paced it is. You see how much waste there is. You see how much garbage there is. And um, also, like, the air quality, you know, especially if you're from upstate, you understand the difference. Like, I feel like working in New York City and in that world really heightens your awareness of these issues if you're open to it. Well, let me make you feel a little better about it. Um, this is sort of counterintuitive to some people, but hear me out. Um, the, yeah. the, 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 the carbon footprint of a family living in New York City is significantly smaller than a carbon footprint of a family living in the Catskills. If they're making the same amount of money doing the same things because the amount of fossil fuels required to uh, go back and forth from school yeah. and supermarkets and, and, and the, the extended amount it takes to get garbage and to deliver heat. And, and you just start adding up all of the things that it requires for a family to live out in the country uh, in the current economy in the Catskills here in Sullivan County versus the some similar family making the same amount of money living in New York City in an apartment. They're going to have a less carbon footprint. So there's real advantages in the future as we look at climate resiliency, you know, to encouraging people to live in urban settings. But they need to be, you know, there's so much room for the improvement there. And also there is certainly it's it also I guess the, 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 the real second point from that uh, observation is that we people who have decided to or you know, just by fate, live in the country, uh, need to proactively reduce their carbon footprint to get back to, like, there are so many ways that we can do that. Um, heat uh, pumps, uh, uh, electric cars, solar panels, you know, using non-motorized lawn uh, equipment, and, and and so people should think about counting their carbon footprint and reducing it if you're living up here, um, because, you know, there is a, a lot of waste that we, um, as people living in the rural countryside, uh, create that's not hard to reduce. You know, it's something that can be achievable. And people always ask me, well, what can I do? And I always say there's, you know, the most important thing is to get involved in local politics. You know, mm-hmm. be on the planning board, the zoning board, you know, go to the town meetings, join the school board, you know, get involved in the community so you know what's going on so that you can help shine a light on on everything. And that's the most important thing. The second most important thing is to, you know, personally take action, do something yourself um, like you're doing with the podcast. That's taking action. That is amazing. That is. And if everybody did something like that, 
the world would be a much, much, much better place. You know, <laughs> if everybody just made like Catskill Mountain Keepers and created podcasts, our world would be a much better place. <laughs> it would be, and it's not impossible. You, you can do, you know, you can, you, you know, you can be ev- everything. You can. Yeah. You, know, you don't have to. You know, oh, I can't be perfect, so I'm not going to do anything. Like that's that is the the absolute wrong attitude for tackling climate change like the attitude is <laughs> do your best keep trying to be better yeah, you're not perfect just do you what know, you can do what you can every day wake up and say yeah, i'm going to try uh, to do a, one more thing here because like i said this is our time our chance and yes mm-hmm. and you know another person that i've been inspired by their enthusiasm who i know you're friendly with and you're on the board of their water defense organization, Mark Ruffalo, who he's a really great actor. And he also resides in the Catskills, I believe. Or, um, And I know that that's something that he's passionate about, but then also other people in the entertainment industry and everything like that. It really inspires me when I see these individuals who are really trying to fight for what we deserve, which is just a safe, clean home, our earth, you know? It takes a certain kind of uh, bravery. I don't think any of us could appreciate it unless you walk in the shoes of someone like Mark to do what he does because... He uh, has a lot of responsibility uh, as an actor and a, a, a public person to. Uh, they have an to, image, and yeah, like, I, mean, right. I, yeah, I still that, lost my, I lost my 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 weight of my words. But you just, you know, it's a lot yeah. of responsibility, and it's 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 not easy to get to a place where you have a. a a soapbox like a celebrity uh, at Mark's level has, it's really hard. Like, it's like so hard. Like, you know, like you can't imagine the work it takes to get there and to risk it all, which he does every day to speak his mind about protecting the environment is just really brave. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. the, the takeaway for me. It's like, that takes a lot of guts. And I think people should look at that and say to themselves, you know, I, I could be brave too. You know, why can't I be brave? He's doing it, you know, and it's not easy. And it's like, you can't be as vocal as he is about the environment and not alienate people that otherwise would want to like him as a, as an actor. You know, it's like, that's, that's the nature of doing that. And I'm just, I think it takes a lot of guts. I, I appreciate that he does it. And I know why he does it because he cares deeply about humanity and the future of the planet, like deeply. And he wants yeah. to do everything that he can. And I, and there's other, lots of other folks in the entertainment field that do great things, use their names to help the world and i you know I th- every time i see any one of them stepping up and doing that I'm, i get i get i think it's really awesome you know um, mm-hmm. that they do it so yeah um and, and uh uh i encourage you know everybody all the celebrities listening <laughs> <laughs> yes use your use your soapbox for good i remember when i was working for you guys mark was there one day and uh we were able to meet him and I remember my encounter with him was so pure and so genuine and so sweet. When we met him, 
uh, he told me, he's like, oh, hey, nice to meet you. And like, he shook my hand and he's like, uh, my child, I have a child the same age as you. And I think at the time his child was like 12 years old or something like that. And I was like, at the time I was 20 or 21. And oh. I was like, I'm like, I'm actually like uh, 20 years old. And he looked at me like such a sincere face where he was like, oh my God, I just called this woman a little girl. And he gave me a hug and <laughs> he was just so nice about it. Oh yeah, uh, that's, that's Mark. You just, yeah. that, that whole story encapsulates the guy. Like uh, so just, goofy and sweet and so yep, nice. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Just uh, it's been a real privilege at Mountkeeper to be able to uh, work with some super talented people beyond just you know talented environmental activists, which is the bread and butter of what we do. It's a privilege to work with all of them, but you know some really cool uh, artists and musicians and 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 uh, actors, people who love the Catskills and want to help. You know, and so we've had uh, Deborah Winger has been a, just a great champion of the Catskills. She's just incredible, uh, and as well as uh, Aiden Quinn, who's just a great actor and a super great guy and done a lot of great things michelle williams um and there's a bunch i mean you know it's really it's really great that people are willing to lend their name and step up um and to support support. to support the cause and then you're also one of the co-owners of the catskill brewery yeah your brand you guys operate out of a gold lead certified building correct very, very proud of that. It's a, it's the most energy efficient, sustainable brewery in the country, at least in the top five. It's really hard to tell, but like we are like at the top of of, of energy efficiency and renewable resources and 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 reducing our carbon footprint. And we have you know a lead certification, a gold lead certification. For those who don't know, is is is, is a special. Uh, highly sought after certification by an independent uh, agency that rates buildings on their energy efficiency. And to get a, there's platinum is the highest, gold is the next one. Um, there are a couple of things that we can't have at the brewery that would keep us from a, a platinum uh, mm-hmm. certification. <laughs> but that's all. That's all part of the fun of it, you know. Uh, well, but uh, it's it's, hey. it's it's a great. <laughs> it, it, it's it's something I'm super proud of. The beer is fantastic, and and the building is really a model of how you can um, you know build a facility. You have green roofs. You have a special H2O drainage. Don't you get your energy from the sun and you reuse and you recycle and you repurpose almost everything that you can? Like that, 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 Everything you said, yes. We have solar PV, solar thermal, uh, green roofs. The whole building is made out of recycled steel, which is super cool. Um, it's it's highly insulated. Um, we have these big-ass fans, which that's the name of them, big-ass fans, that, that <laughs> circulate um the air above and 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 we so we have uh our, our radiant floor heating through geothermal and then that you know really keeps the the temperature of the brewery uh, uh the uh, temperature we need it at just a little colder than you might like but not too cold all year long and and our energy uh costs are you know dramatically 
lower than than other uh, breweries without these kinds of um, of renewable energy sources. Um, it's just it pays, you know, it pays off. And the thing about these things, these investments, and one of the reasons that we did it this way, and why I'm so passionate about it, um, is that the upfront costs uh, on renewable energy investments. The payouts are incredible in the medium mm-hmm. medium term, you know, mm-hmm. and people really struggle to understand how significant that is. It's hard to say, oh, well, you know, in 20 years, I'll get my money back. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, but, but it's like totally worth it. <laughs> but it's like in 20 years, you know, but in the, in the leading up to 20 years, you're not paying that full price, you know, necessarily. I mean, you know, it's a, it's such a good investment, you know, if mm-hmm. you can, if you can make it happen, you know, and that's where, you know, there's a lot of frustration amongst all of us in this space um, as the technology evolves and, and solar panels and batteries get better and better. Um, that there's not more federal and state incentive to uh, have people convert. Like there shouldn't be anybody who wants to, who shouldn't be getting solar and, uh, and other renewable uh, energy resources in the state. Like it should be like, it should be the outliers who don't have it. And it's still, we're still trying to catch up with the Joneses on this. You know, there's still Mm -hmm. so much solar to be done here in New York state. And we're way ahead of everybody else. I mean, New York's leading the nation on this stuff um, in so many ways, but. It's good that we're leading it, but I just want to see where like, that's just like, normal and it shouldn't be hard or complicated anymore none of this stuff should be at all like uh confusing or or hard like that someone shouldn't need to understand the technology of solar anymore like it shouldn't be it's like i don't understand the technology of hulu tv but it works and i pay for you know i pay for it and i get it and it's yeah you know, so I don't need to understand all of this about wires and connectors and panels. And, you know, they it's still like we need to just jumpstart that stuff so fast and make it so straightforward and easy for everybody to do it. It's happening. It's not it happening fast enough. <laughs> yeah, it's not happening fast enough. And I think I read that part of the Mountain Keeper's mission statement is like making these types of things accessible to everybody and like making access to cleaner ways of energy and just uh living so i i hope that um well you know that i interrupted you because i got excited because we haven't had a chance to talk about a just transition uh, as we talk about these, you know, the transition away from fossil fuels to renewable energy and our race to try to mitigate the impacts of climate change, if we don't do something now and make it our number one priority, uh, people of color and minorities are going to be disproportionately negatively impacted by the transition. Mm-hmm. Finger snaps, finger snaps, because that's so true. So thank you yeah. for saying that. <laughs> yeah, and, then, and so it's like it's it's imperative, and and uh, you know the New York Renews Coalition here in New York State, which Mountain Keepers um, very involved in, um, is leading that effort here to make sure that there is a just transition, and I think New York State will lead the nation again as this as this, as this gets implemented the climate bill that was passed with the, the the budget side now where they're really the rubber meets the road and 
the issues of a just transition have to be directly addressed because this is where we show what a true democracy is about, where we share the burdens of the effects of our decisions. You know, we have to share the burden, you know, mm-hmm. the other, you know, mm-hmm. regardless of race, color, or economic position. Yeah, economic positions and advantages because um, the things that should be done and need to be done, like you were saying, that should just be more accessible to everybody. Do you have specific advice for people on how they can make the world a better place, but then just because you are an expert in this, maybe even a little more particular in regards to nature preservation and combating climate change, do you have any specific advice for people? I do. It's really straightforward uh, advice. And I've, cause I've thought a lot about it and I get asked this question a lot because I do know one thing from just being out there in the world and being a, po- a vocal advocate for the environment. You know, it gives me an opportunity to get a lot of feedback, negative and positive from people. Um, but what I sort of really focused in on is that the number one um, thing that I believe if people do they can make the most amount of difference is around protecting the natural resources of the place they live is to get involved locally Mm -hmm. Um, and that means joining a group like mountain keeper or starting a group like mountain keeper or starting even smaller and starting a community group friends of x valley friends of town of x friends of and organizing people in meeting and talking about the issues that are in your own community. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's easy to do. And everyone would come, you know, to if you invited them. I'm saying that. I don't know who you are out there. But I'm saying, <laughs> in general, if you say, I want to start a friends group so we can really make sure that we're supporting and protecting our, uh, so we understand what's going on. And that is so important. And powerful mm-hmm. because it, it, you know, the change, uh, you know, change comes by acting locally, and it's overwhelming to try to think that you can solve climate change alone. You know, mm-hmm. like it, it, that that feeling becomes like unbearable, unbearable. and uh, debilitating because I experienced that. <laughs> once you once you are part of a community, once you have created a we group of people who are working together. That compounds, and there are other we's in other towns, and and they start sharing information, and then all of a sudden people are talking about things. And then when there is an emergency, when there is an opportunity, when there is important legislation, you know, there's a movement, there's a, a group of people all folk all agreeing on one thing that we're gonna, you know, protect the natural resources and battle the impacts of climate change. You know, you don't have to talk about politics or you know football teams or you know or you know what what HBO or 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 uh, Showtime. It doesn't matter, you know. Okay. It, yeah. So that's what people should do. If you're not involved. Find out if you can get involved in a local group. If there isn't a local group and if, or if the local group that exists isn't what you have in mind, doesn't share the values that you have, start your own. And I mean that if you're a teenager or, in, you know, young, <laughs> teenagers, college students, parents, grandparents, you know. Um, it doesn't matter where. You know, yeah. I feel like no matter where you are in your life, it 
will be just as important because you'll be able to connect with the right people and the right demographics because, you know, we're all unique and individuals. And I think that by using and executing our power is, in fact, just like what you're saying, how we can make a difference. And it's also really rewarding. I mean, one of the challenges with uh, tackling climate change is, you know, when you change a traditional light bulb with the new mandated light bulbs, it's not the greatest reward center. I mean, it feels good. You're like, okay, I just got out, got rid of a bulb that's, you know, using way too much energy and replaced it with one that's way more energy efficient. That's like, I just reduced my carbon footprint. Good. You know, that's good. But getting really involved and and organizing at a community level and sharing information and uh, building listservs and, you know, going to the town board and zoning board meetings to find out what's going on is super rewarding Mm -hmm. because you feel empowered. You know, you start to understand that like local government isn't a mystery. You know, it's, it's, (laughs) it's just people, you know, getting engaged in government and you have the right to. To do. Mm-hmm. There's nothing keeping any of us away from being, you know, the town supervisor or the legislative chairman or the state senator or um, county legislator. That, or maybe all, even president. Who knows? Or, or even nothing. There's nothing. We're all, you know, and so again, I, I think, <laughs> you know, it can be a little, uh, you know. What do you mean? You know, but it's seriously, it's like get involved, get involved, you know, raise the issues, talk about climate change at the public meetings, make everybody like force them to deal with it. Like, even mm-hmm. if they don't want to like say it, <laughs> you know, bring it up. I like you know, the make, way you think. Yeah. Well, like- it's like I said, I'm not, I, I, I'm not holding any punches personally. I mean, I, I, I'm going to scream from the rooftops that climate change is coming and we have to deal with it, you know, and I'm not going to pretend like it's not going to happen, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. happening. Or that and, it's uh, happening actively. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for being here and taking the time to share all this information with us. Are there any specific websites or links you would like to share in regards to the mountain keeper or the brewery or anything else sure yeah i'll do i'll do three so um go, please go to catskill mountain dot org and and join uh join our mailing list it's free you can just sign up and that way you can get on our mailing list and we don't you know we send uh the important information that's it like that's that's what we do we so you're informed if you join our mailing list and if you want to check out the brewery uh catskillbrewery.com um and the uh, brewery's right in Livingston manor come on by and then uh, i wanted to just give a shout out to the new york renews uh, nyrenews.org uh, new york renews and that's the coalition that's working in albany on climate change and that's where a lot of the uh, advocacy and action is around the climate bill um certainly go to the website and find out where we're, what's going on right now and how you can get involved here in new york state and always any any of your listeners you know reach out to mountain keeper reach out to me um and we'd love to uh help in any way we can wow <laughs> so wonderful thank you so much ramsey for uh, your time and this beautiful conversation <laughs> thank you so much i uh i really appreciate the opportunity Yes, you're welcome. Have a good day. Bye. Bye.
this is Ariana, and I wanted to pop in really quick just to fact check something I said earlier in the episode. I couldn't find the original post on social media I saw regarding the labor force behind the consumption of fresh produce in America during the winter months, but I did a little bit of research on my own, and this is what I found. According to USDA.gov, as of 2020, 77% of fresh vegetables here in the U.S. had been imported from Mexico. According to the U.S. Department of Labor, there is evidence of forced labor in tomato and chili pepper production in Mexico. It is estimated that at least hundreds of people within each crop industry are forced to work up to 15 hours per day, receiving no or sub-minimum wages for their labor. Enganchadores are middlemen that lie to workers about the nature and conditions of work, wages, hours, and quality of living conditions, and they're used to recruit workers for these farms. Indigenous farm workers from impoverished regions of central and southern Mexico are particularly vulnerable to forced labor in agriculture due to low education levels, linguistic barriers, and discrimination. Slightly more disturbing information I found was that there is evidence of child labor, labor performed by children between the ages of 5 and 14 years old, in the following industries. Production of beans, cattle, chili peppers, coffee, cucumbers, eggplants, garments, leather goods, melons, onions, poppies, pornography, sugarcane, tobacco, and tomatoes. I did find an article depicting a slightly more optimistic point of view, praising that Mexico's export-oriented agriculture creates valuable jobs for workers with little education and they receive wages of 200 to 300 pesos a day, greater than Mexico's minimum wage of 103 pesos per day. Sounds pretty good, or at least I thought, but I looked up the exchange rate and 300 Mexican pesos equates to a whopping 17 U.S. dollars and 38 cents. And in case you were wondering what 103 Mexican pesos equates to, it's 5 U.S. dollars and 97 cents. The information from this article is from a survey that had been funded by the Walmart Foundation. So, yeah. Need I say too much more? The links to the articles that I used to find this information can be found in the show notes. Thank you so much for tuning in and sharing your time with us. Wherever you are listening today, please take the time to follow or subscribe to All Things Good Podcast to stay connected and updated with our latest episodes. Be sure to check out New York Renews at nyrenews.org to stay informed on how you can take action to help combat climate change. I cannot wait until next time, and I'm sending you financial abundance and a load of golden opportunities. Bye!